Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We are we we don't have really authority in our lives that we can really touch and feel other than the word. Obviously, you are authority, but you speak through your word. So, Lord, we're asking you to speak to our hearts. We pray it every week, Lord. We cannot, apart from your Holy Spirit, comprehend the depth of your word. So we need you this morning, and we invite you into our presence in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we're going to continue this. I know some of you, we're, we're just not moving along fast enough. I, ho- I hope you begin to realize that it's all interrelated. You go, there's one verse, you can take one verse of the text and go throughout the entirety of Scripture. Uh, I was asked this week, I was speaking at one of the clubs this week, and, and they had asked, and, and it was kind of an interview format, and they said, how can we really trust the Word? How can we trust the Bible? And, you know, I could have gone back and all this study about the Dead Sea Scrolls giving us, you know, extant manuscript that was almost, you know, eight or 900 years predated the last one that we had and gone back into some other uh, guys like Josephus or Pliny the Younger. I mean, I could have gone down this long litany of things that would give me some sense of why I would believe that the Word is actually God's Word and corroborating, you know, testimony from non-biblical sources, et cetera, et cetera. However... That's really not the primary reason that I think that this is God's word. The primary reason is, is that I've read it. And many of you have read it too. It just has a different feel. It has a certain authority about it, doesn't it? It just feels different. It feels like it's reading your mail uh, most of the time, or at least it does me. It, you can pick this up. And for a, for a document that's a couple of thousand years old, that's extraordinary that we haven't outlived it. It hasn't been. But even that... Although that carries a lot of weight with me and makes me feel it's God's word, I think what you begin to realize is that from Genesis to Revelation, over 40 authors, 66 different books, it has a consistent theme. And that theme is not how to have, just for you to have a better life, or it's a revelation of Jesus from beginning to end. And that's shocking to a lot of people because Old Testament was codified again some 200 years in advance of Jesus. And why would that be? Well, God's plan, once the fall happened in Genesis 3, so again, as we've said many times, Genesis 1 and 2, as we'll see this morning, and it was good, and it was good. And then it's not really good again in its fullness until the very last two chapters of, the, of, the, of this book, Revelation 21 and 22. Everything else is the story of redemption through Jesus. That's the story. And each book, each place that you look is consistent in that message. And so you could launch from one verse and you can go all over the Bible because it all points back to redemption through Jesus. Now what we've been talking about is this whole concept, or Paul has, and then we're exploring it in Ephesians, uh, the first three chapters, really a strong picture of kind of a theological understanding of kind of a that runs the gamut. I mean, for compressed into just three chapters, there's probably not three chapters, if you want to understand the gospel, that wouldn't be more pertinent and more comprehensive than the first three chapters in Ephesians. And then we've moved and gravitated into four, and then four, five, and six are practical outworkings. How does this actually work itself out? How does this work? And then what kind of people we should we be? So Ephesians 4.22 in review is simply, well, in reference to your former manner of life, lay aside the old self. We've talked about it the last three weeks. Which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, put on the new self. 
which in the likeness of God has been created, what? In righteousness and holiness of the truth. So we're putting off a lot of metaphors here, taking off our old clothes, putting on the clean festal robes that we look back that was really a picture all the way. It was consistent through the Old Testament and all the way through the New. It's really putting on Christ, this new life that we're putting on. And now we move from that into this next verse. Now, at first glance, it may seem like, well, this is really simple. People who are thieves don't do that anymore. End of story. But there's a deeper underlying principle that I don't want us to miss this morning. And so the topic this morning really is going to consist around the theology of work. And everybody went, amen. Yeah, well, only one amen, really. I mean, you know, it's like work. Yeah, a lot of you will say, well, work, I thought that was part of the fall. Genesis 3 said it's now that you're going to cultivate this ground, but it's going to to be difficult. It's going to produce weeds. It's going to, you have to do it by the sweat of your brow. So work is really part of the curse. Work is not part of the curse. That kind of work is part of the curse, but work itself is a function of God, and we are created in his image. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, listen, it says, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Now, this is more than just something about, well, you were a taker and now you should be a giver. This is uh, something insightful here that we can grab hold of that really lead to, and I'm going to use some of the new atheist terms, and they're right, but they get to it wrongly It's human flourishing, or Jesus would say, abundant life. Do you want abundant life? Well, work is part of the abundant life that was actually given to them in the garden, and we're going to look at that this morning. I don't know if you remember, there was a story about a guy named Jeffrey Owens. It was in the last uh, three or four months. I don't remember exactly. He was one of the characters on, on a TV show, The Cosby Show. Uh, and uh, he was the guy, he was the guy, Elvin Thibodeau, and they caught pictures of him later, and of course, that was just a massively successful show for all those years, and couldn't he have, I'm sure he's getting a lot of rights and money, but did he misuse his money, but they were taking pictures of him working at Trader Joe's, and it went viral, went went all over the internet, and people were like, what in the world, how in the world could a guy like, and they shamed him, they job shamed him, that's really what they did. Here's a guy, you know, successful Hollywood guy, what's he doing, bagging groceries at Trader Joe's? What kind of a deal is this? And I find it interesting, listen to this article from actually the Theology of Work website, it says, he's a Hollywood actor famous for his role as Alvin Thibodeau on The Cosby Show, and he'd been working at Trader Joe's for about 15 months, heaven forbid, to provide for his family in between acting opportunities. And photographs of him working were published by media outlets. People from all walks of life defended Owens and denounced the coverage as job shaming. And I think so. I think that's rightfully so. Yet in the wake of the scandal, a valuable conversation about work has actually emerged. Owens himself offered a passionate defense of honest work in a clip posted by Time on Twitter. In the clip, Owens said he hoped his experience would lead to a new recognition about work and about people working. Specifically, now catch this, the dignity of work and the dignity of the working person. He also noted that one kind of work is not better, superior than another kind of work. And I would echo that. I mean, we 
we absolutely idolize. Everything, all these shows are now something idol, you know, American Idol, this idol, that idol. We worship celebrity. We worship sports celebrity. We worship even business celebrity, you know. I mean, Tim Cook, I was, I was at a club this week, and he's moving, he bought a home here in the desert, and he's moving into this club, and he had all of his entourage and moving around. And I mean, he's like a celebrity, like Steve Jobs was a celebrity. We think, now that's valuable, but bagging, bagging groceries at Trader Joe's is not valuable at all. Not biblically speaking. It's very valuable. It's very valuable. According to a 2016 Pew survey, most working adults felt that their job providing them a sense of identity as opposed to just being what they did for a living. 70% of Americans in, in this 2016 general social survey agree that they would enjoy having a paying job even if they didn't need the money. Heaven forbid. Moreover, Gallup polling shows that 92% of working adults were satisfied with their jobs in 2017, up from 87% when the question was first asked in 93. These positive feelings toward work may come as no surprise to many. In fact, social scientists have long linked work to human happiness and well-being. For example, the prominent social psychologist Jonathan Haidt posits in his book The Happiness Hypothesis that, by the way, this is a secular book, that human happiness and well-being are fundamentally connected to work. I have his book. According to Haight, humans have a basic drive to make things happen. Remember that. Human beings have a basic instinctual drive. I think it's because we're created in the image of God to make things happen. I agree with him. And most people fulfill this need through work. Alongside a couple of other factors, he argues, work provides a sense of meaning and purpose in people's lives. Now, biblically, this desire to make things happen, is this a justifiable position? Well, I think it is, so let's go back to Genesis. So Genesis, if you would, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Now, many of you, this will, you'll know this well. You will, have, you will have read the first two chapters, the creation story. A lot of controversy surrounding this. How literally do we take this? How literally do we take the numbers? All these kind of things. That is not a topic for us to discuss this morning. There are deeper biblical truths, universal truths that we find here, and it's going to understand. Without without an understanding of being created in God's image, and we'll talk about that as both being reflective of God, imaging God, if you will, mirroring God, and also representing God. Without that, work doesn't make any sense. Let me say that again. Without understanding that we are imaging God, we are reflection of His character. That's what we're called to do as followers of Jesus. These new clothes give us an actual picture of God Himself. Now, that may be a strong statement. Are you saying that we're God? I'm not saying that we're God at all. I said we're called to image God, reflect His nature. How do we know that? Well, Genesis 1 says this, then God said, let us make man in our image. Now, many of you have been around that, by the way, uh, even rabbis struggle with this idea of the plurality of Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image. Who's the us and the our? It's the Godhead. It's the pre-incarnate Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit. It's God the Father says, according to our likeness, and let them rule over. So we have image bearing, and then we have ruling over. 
the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, as a sidebar note, I think male and female are both created in the image of God. And if you're thinking just about a physical image, you missed the point. The point is, is that both male intrinsic male characteristics and intrinsically female characteristics together give us a whole picture of who God is. A lot of times we think of God as only being masculine or male. And the, and the reality is, is that our image bearing both male and female gives us a fuller picture of who God is. And I'm so happy that that's true because I realize how dis associated I become even with the needs of our own children but Laura is always there to care and to nurture and all of that and then when I think about God being like me I'm like I hope not (laughs) I hope he cares more about me than and sometimes it's not that I don't care about my kids I'm not as attentive to their needs as my wife is. She knows every detail. She knows every hair product that they use. She knows everything, every brand, every, the time they wake up, she knows everything. And I kind of have a general picture, how you girls doing, you know, and, and I have, but I also have a different task. My task is connect, more, more involved in connecting them to culture and training in, in the way that I can. And that, that gives us a picture actually of who God is in his fullness. Genesis 5.1 says, This is the book of the generations of Adam in the day when God created man. He made him in the likeness of God. You have been created in the likeness of God. If you haven't, then you are an accident. And if you are an accident, if all of that that we see is an accident, and if someday this chapter of what we would call human history comes to a staggering end through a meteor or some kind of horrific massive volcano or, you know, somehow we move out of our axis or whatever. If that comes by accident, the world comes to an end by accident. So it began in an accident and ended in an accident. We cannot make any real cogent argument about us being created in the image of God. And we also can't make any cogent argument about work itself. If we're just down here for a little while, we're not created in God's image then just get by however you can. And if you steal, keep stealing as long as you don't get caught because that might hamper your style behind bars, okay? So the question now, of course, is can we really become like God? I mean, that's a big question. A lot of people say, absolutely, we cannot. Well, that's not the narrative. All this These next three chapters in Ephesians that we're discussing are talking about what our community looks like. It's reflective of Jesus himself. Can we really? Well, not in all ways. We certainly can't become like God in all ways, can we? I mean, are we the judge of everything? You know, Romans 12 says, absolutely not. Never take your own revenge. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. So we're not called to be the judge. That's one aspect in which God is God and we are not. Why? Because God has all the facts and we don't. He understands the nuances of our differences. We always see it like we see it and we always assume, especially in a valley like this, a lot of people think the way I see it is the way it is. And it becomes kind of hilarious because I grew up at the country club my whole life. I've been at the country club. And when you have everybody there used to running businesses, they seem to say, I see it this way. Therefore, that's the way it is because that's the way. Well, all my subordinates always said, yeah, that's the way it is because you got used to running a business. But now you have all, you don't have any, 
Well, you have all Indian chiefs now. Sorry if that was cultural appropriation, but you have all these, you have all these chiefs at these country clubs and then they come and then they try to, and then, they, well, clearly it's this way because that's the way I see it. But God's the judge, and you walk in deeper levels of humility and going, well, maybe the way I see it is not, maybe I don't have the full picture. Maybe I have, maybe I'm persuaded in this particular area. So in that, in that sense, we're not like God at all. God's the judge. He's the one that should enact revenge because he does it in love, perfectly in love, upholding his justice as we talk about often in here. Can we create stuff out of nothing? I can't. I can create things. But I can't do it out of nothing. God does that. It's the realm of, of which God makes God God. God is outside of time and space. He spoke everything that we see, taste, touch, and feel into existence. It had to be so. That's why every other creation story and myth that may even seem to parallel is different than ours because they are inside creation. Those gods are part of creation, then creating. And they say, well, where did, they, where did the gods come from? Well, that's not our God. Our God is outside of time and space, not dependent on time and space. It had to be to start time and space. And so our God, by definition, is different than all other gods, by the way, in case you didn't know that. So that, well, I can't be outside of time and space. That's the unique realm of God. That's what makes him God. That's why we worship like we do. That's why we take this seriously. We can't maintain the cosmic Goldilocks zone? No way. Can we keep everything spinning? Can we uphold Kepler's laws? Can we keep everything? Are we, if we were just a little further away from the sun, we would freeze. Just a little closer, we would burn up. All these things. Can we, can we keep the nuclear fusion in our star, the sun, going so that it provides the light? And we maybe talked about this at various points. Takes one photon created in nuclear, nuclear fusion takes it one, sometimes one million years to get from the core of the sun to our skin. One million years to work out through all the zones and the convection zones and all this. And eventually it goes flying at 186,000 miles a second, having been transformed from X-rays and gamma rays, which are 10,000 times as powerful as a normal visible light, otherwise it would have burned us up. Can you keep all that in control? Can you keep that working and the distance? And they, they call that the cosmic Goldilocks zone. Everything has to be perfectly fine-tuned for us to be here. One tiny little slip in all of these ma- massive laws, and we are toast. One tiny slip. It's extraordinary. That's the realm for God. I can't, I can't, I can't keep on top of that. I can barely keep on top of my taxes. And I'm going to keep everything spinning at this rate? No, not me. That's for God. Can we control others and accomplish all of our plans? No. But God does. He says, my words never fail. Once they come out of my mouth, they will accomplish the purpose for which I sent them. That's the realm of God. In those ways, we cannot become like God. It's clear. We cannot become like God. However, again, and, I, and I'm very indebted to this uh, organization called the Theology of Work, by the way. I'm, I'm deriving very much of their outline, this, the second part of this, um, this lecture or sermon this morning, and I will just simply say that I appreciate their depth of insight and work on this. Their quote is simply this, however, God is a creator who does these. He works in the material world. We can do that. He works in relationship. We can do that. And his work observes limits. We also can do that. We do have the ability to do those things, all those things we can do. This other stuff, the realm of God. 
his immutability, all of his attributes. I mean, he is inimitable. I mean, there's no question about it. We are not. He is. But we can do these things. In fact, it's called the creation mandate, if you don't know or heard that, or the cultural mandate. It's what we just read. It's our mandate to take dominion and then, and then all that flows from that. Anthony Hoikma, one of the great theologians from Calvin Theological Seminary, says, God commands man to be fruitful and to have dominion, and this is commonly called the cultural mandate, the command to rule the earth of God and to develop, now catch this, a God-glorifying culture. What work does, a culture doesn't emerge apart from work, okay? Without work, we cannot create culture. And the call, etymologically, if you go back to our word, you know, the Bible in Genesis 2.15 says we were called, God planted it, and then we're called to cultivate it and keep it. That word cultivate is where we get our word culture. So we think, oh, culture is the domain of the secular. No, it's not. It's God's domain. We, as followers of Jesus, could, should create now a kingdom culture, which is a culture of honor as opposed to, well, a secular culture that is, honor is not very highly valued in our day, is it? It's brutal. But we are called to cultivate and keep, or if you will, create culture. Well, how do we do that? As I alluded to earlier, we must mirror God or image Him, and we must represent God as ambassadors of Christ. We've talked about it often here. So we are both a representative of God, and we also reflect or image God. As we worship Him, we can then reflect that to others. As we are sanctified, we can reflect that to others. We're going to talk about, and I think it'll be a very unique thought for you, uh, about why God said, do not create or bow down to these idols. It's part of the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments. See that in a minute and why that was so important. I, 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 let me say this. I, I think about, I was doing some research this week, and uh, I came across a guy. Uh, we often talk about work, and we talk about welfare and how bad welfare is. Well, welfare is not bad. Welfare to people that could be working is bad. It leads to the decimation of generations who become welfare recipients. Even though they could work, they just get used to being in that cycle, and it robs them of their dignity. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but a guy named Richard Berry is the mayor of Albuquerque, New Mexico. And he started a program that was really incredibly fascinating. I think, I think it was called A Better Way. And it's actually starting to roll out in other cities around the country. And he was fascinated. They had an issue with panhandling in his city. And it was a growing problem. We have some of that here in the Coachella Valley. Not a lot, but we have some. Some places, you know, I know especially in the Northwest, other places, I think Portland and other places that really struggle with this issue of panhandling. And he happened to go be walking by and they had started to put these signs up in these places that panhandlers tended to congregate. And it was essentially call you know, 311 if you need these services, and it was just kind of all these things that you could do so the city could come to their assistance so they wouldn't have to panhandle. And there was a picture taking of a man holding a sign that says, you know, I will work for food right underneath of where he could get food, a sign underneath the food. Now, the tendency would be, see, those guys, they really don't want to work. What they really want is just do zoo money, and then they use that money potentially for drugs or alcohol, and that does happen very often 
But his feeling was, no, I do think there might be a higher percentage that actually do want to work. But that's challenging, isn't it? What are you going to do? Bring a guy over into your house to do some manual labor and you don't know any of his background? I mean, the logistics of getting somebody actually to work. So he started this program and they partnered with, heaven forbid, the church. Local nonprofits, some rescue missions and some actual help. It was staggering how many of those people, when they got, they got a van, he actually had a van from the city that they started out with and put this, you know, better way on there. And he got an extraordinary guy to come, an African-American guy that was just a loving, caring, compassionate guy that had actually been homeless at one point. And he would go from these place to place where these panhandlers would be and invite them to go and work for a day or longer if they would like to. And then they, they fast-tracked, you know, the whole process. Usually it takes six weeks to go through the process of actually being able to work in a social place in Albuquerque. And they fast-tracked that thing and got it down to where they could actually come in, make $9 an hour, get one meal per day, and actually begin to live in a working environment. And it, was the, it has been staggering the results from what's been going on. Uh, almost all of them say, I would like to work. And these are not glamorous jobs, but the whole city, and they, they, um, I forget what the number was, but it was just amazing how much, you know, trash had been picked up and beautiful, you know, areas had been made to look clean again and the wonder of what these people were doing. And they felt incredible dignity. And he said, and the reason that they know that is because the percentage of those that actually begin to ask for services for their maybe addiction or some mental health things or other things or some very realistic problems, they started going there faster. It was amazing. There was an 80% reduction in unsheltered homelessness, 80%. 40% reduction in chronic homelessness. I mean, it's just just, if these numbers continue, I mean, it's just an amazing program. Imagine the dignity of work, even if it's something that seems manual and bagging groceries at Trader Joe's. We don't value that. God values that. We were created to work. And everything that you do, that provides something for the community. That provides something, and it gives you a better sense that you are, in fact, created Imago Dei. You are reflecting God. Why? Because God worked for six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. God's a worker. Amazing, isn't it? Just staggering to think about that. Well, on the flip side, you say, well, you know, that's welfare. You know, we should, this is all about those who have, they, you know, should work. Well, let me, let me just stop for a second. We have a tendency, especially in this valley, and, and I've read a lot about this through the years, of people leaving hundreds of millions of dollars to heirs. And even on grandchildren, great-grandchildren, people they're not even going to know. They essentially put their descendants on welfare whether they know it or not. They no longer feel the need to work. And I don't care whether you're welfare, and I know this may be step on some toes, but sometimes there's nothing wrong. The Bible talks about it's a righteous man who leaves an inheritance to his children's children. That's beautiful, and the Bible talks about that. But to leave those kinds of amounts of money to where they no longer have to work, what you're doing is you're robbing them of the dignity of work because they no longer have to work. Warren Buffett's famous for this. He, he's, you know, he's, even though he's billions and billions, all the way back in 1986, I read an article. He, at that time, he was only worth about a billion and a half dollars back in 1986. Now, only. But he had already determined that he wasn't going to do that. It was fascinating. He said, he said simply this. He said, my kids are going to carve out their own place in this world, and they know I'm 
for them whatever they want to do. But he believes that setting up his heirs with a lifetime supply of food stamps, notice his language, just because they came out of the right womb can be harmful for them. And it's an antisocial act to him. The perfect amount to leave children is enough money so that they would feel they could do anything, but not so much that they could do nothing and rob them of the dignity of work. Now, that's either true or not true. It's, it's not necessarily biblical coming. It comes from the Oracle of Omaha. But, you know, maybe there's some truth in that. There's John uh, Levy, executive director at the uh, Institute in San Francisco, has spent the past five years studying the effects of inherited wealth on 30 families. He concluded that many wealthy children experience considerable suffering and deprivation because they have little self-respect. It's hard for them to take much satisfaction in their own accomplishments because they always suspect that their successes are at least partly the result of wealth and position that they have inherited. And, uh, and then Ross Perot, you know, the old Ross Perot. I'm going to take this presidency, I'm telling you, I'm going to... I'm sorry, I just had to do that. <laughs> that was bad. I didn't think of that before, but I just could not do it when it popped into my head. I, I need a better filter, don't I? Ross Perot says, if your kids grow up living in fairyland thinking that they're princes and princesses, you're going to curse their lives. I don't know if that's true or not, but he, he believes that's true. Parents who want to encourage their offspring to work and provide them a little extra money besides can create incentive income trusts designed to match or double the child's salary. The trust can also be set up to pay out principal if a child achieves some objective, such as attaining tenure at a university or even holding down a steady job. So, I mean, there are other, other alternatives to just disincentivizing your kids down the road. Now, some of you have done maybe an extraordinary job with your own kids, and they will actually take some of the wealth that you've given them and use it in a way that you would have. And in that way, I'm, I'm sure those kinds of pass downs are very good. And again, this is not about not leaving anything for your kids. I think it's biblical and right to leave something for your kids. But you don't want to get them to a place where they just are on the dole. How is that any different in God's eyes than food stamps from the government? It's the same thing. You're disincentivizing. You're not allowing people to image God in that God works. So here's the question. There are five categories of human work. We're going to talk about those quickly. Uh, dominion, relationships, fruitfulness and growth, provision, and limits to explain what that is. Genesis 1.26, as we said, one more time, God says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over, and it goes on, everything that creeps on the earth. Now, as we, access, as we exercise dominion over the created world, we do it knowing that we mirror God, God working. As we've said, we are not the originals but the images, and our duty is to use the original God as our pattern, not ourselves. Now, if that happens, if that happens, if we can image God properly, our work then serves God's purposes more than our own, prevents us from domineering. So a lot of times when you hear about dominion, take dominion, we get pictures of people who have dominated us. Taking dominion in the way that God takes dominion elevates people and serves people. It doesn't trample over people. We'll get to that in a minute, especially as it relates to how woman was created in the Hebrew, Ezer, 
which is a helper, a helper. And we think, oh, no, that's bad. I mean, that's old, you know. That, that's why I don't like anything to do with the church because the man dominates the woman. No, 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 not, a, not if we're imaging God. If we're imaging culture as part of the curse, as we'll see, then that's a problematic. But if we're imaging God, that's something quite different. Now, dominion is a contract from God to care for the earth. It's like a contract. And, and our fellow workers and our customers and anybody that we come into contact with. You know, sometimes we think, well, that was them way back then. They lived in this perfect garden. They were just to go out and pick, kind of pick the fruit and do the, you know, it wasn't really work. And no, that's not what it was about. They were always called to cultivate and keep. And we think agrarian terms. Don't think just agrarian terms. Think of anything that you do that glorifies God. Uh, Aaron Badley, who was part of our PJ Tour outreach here a number of weeks back, as if you've seen, but he's, I think he's tied for third going into the final round this week. I sent him a text. We texted back and forth a little bit this morning. And I was like, just go out there and glorify God through your work. Glorify God through your work. He's not going to be preaching a sermon this morning, but he can preach a sermon with his life. And he's imaging God in the fact that he's caring for his family. In this sense, golf is merely entertainment, but it is an avenue to create value and work. And I said, if you're glorifying God, Aaron, then you can be, have freedom in your play because you're there to glorify God and not try to glorify yourself. That right there, I could save a lot of these guys on the tour a lot of money with their sports psychologists. If you can work to glorify God, it'll take the pressure off you. And if you're trying to glorify yourself, and I know that because I've failed at that so many times, trying to glorify me in my play rather than trying to glorify God through a beautiful attitude or, or a beautiful life. Whether it wins or loses, it does it with grace. That's, that's glorifying God. Amen. Now notice God planted the garden. We're called to cultivate it and keep it as I alluded to earlier. Again, keep, I keep I want to pound that in over and over this morning. Cultivate, create culture through work. You say, well, I'm retired. A lot of many, you know, the valley's full of retired people. There are so many things you can engage in. I mean, I, that's one of the things I love about now Church at the Red Door that we didn't always have by me just, you know, doing these groups at clubs. Now we have an avenue for people to actually, even in this stage of life, to actually apply themselves and work and be productive in the kingdom. And they don't have to necessarily worry about a paycheck anymore. But don't lose the dignity. I have watched this over and over. I've watched guys that retire and they leave the workaday world and then they go from that to no work at all, only recreation, only serving themselves, only pleasing themselves, and they have enough money to do it. And they become miserable. It is not the flourishing of life. I'm telling you, it's not. It's not the way. And I think science is good, on, uh, right on this, uh, People die earlier when they do that, when they don't have a sense of mission. I'm glad Jim and Lorraine are here. I'm glad they're, they're still on mission, man, 82. I just got back from Mongolia. 82-year-olds don't go to Mongolia. <laughs> Even Mongolia. No, I won't say that. But think about it. But it drives them. There's integrity there. There's dignity. There's, there's imaging. There's, there's all those things that occur when we are engaged in producing. Now, we'll talk about what kind of work that is in a minute. Now, secondly, relationships are an outcome of biblical work. This is so key. Genesis 1.27 says, he created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Notice, male and female. So, right off the bat, there's relationship in the work. 
So I can tell you to raise a family, it, science is clear on this, secular science, having a man and a woman in the family is better than not having a one-parent household. Now, if you're involved in raising kids at one parent, there's grace there. God can be your ally and partner. There's grace, wonderful grace at the cross. But in the end, it's great to have a mother and a father because they, when they come together relationally, the work multiplies. And so when it talks about multiply and fill the earth, we do that relationally much more effectively than we do in isolation. I think most of us would recognize that. Genesis 2.18 says, and the Lord said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. So we are called to love our co-laborers. Now, especially when you're talking about building the kingdom, you're talking about this love relationship that occurs, and I see many of you who I've done ministry with through the years, and what a love relationship comes out of working. If we weren't working towards the kingdom, we would have never, you know, say, hey, how you doing? You know, let's have dinner once in a while, and then everybody forgets, and once every two or three years, we might get together and catch up on the kids, but the depth of relationship that happens is a function of work together in the fields, Spent some time again with Jim and Tom yesterday, and Jim was like, pray for laborers in the field. Notice, laborers. Jesus told us to pray for laborers. That's work. People don't come to Christ, and, and all this gets set up, and everything that happens, and anything that helps sustain you spiritually, even in this context, doesn't happen without work. No, nothing's produced. Not, and I, I thought about it the other day of how many things I just take for granted. My iPhone and this bed. Who constructed this bed? And who made this house? And, and all the things that we have in a, such a privileged society, and it was a function of relational work. Relational work. Matthew 11 29 even says that in some ways, Jesus, we work alongside Jesus himself. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Notice the proximity. My, a yoke is a picture of a labor picture. A yoke is something that was used to help plow fields. Take on my yoke. I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Imagine rest in work. I find it to be true. Uh, you know, vacations are nice. Getting some time away is nice. But at a certain point, it almost feels like you get more tired at the end of the vacation. But when you couple it with work and then some rest and then work and re rest is more sweet. It's more satisfying. There's, just a, there's something true about that when I'm doing something. When I, I get up every day and I don't have to do anything I don't want to do. And work is just not on the agenda other than to work to somehow satisfy myself. I lose something. There's an element in which my soul is not made full, the flourishing of life again. And as you see Jesus, if you think about it, notice how I am humble and gentle of heart. When you're working alongside Jesus, you become more like Jesus. I've just found that to be true. If you're working in tandem with Jesus, it's just like you becoming more like the people you work with. The people you're closest in proximity, you'll have an effect on them, but they inversely will have an effect on you. Be cautious of who you're working with. Now, that doesn't mean that you leave the workforce or somehow you're going to go into the ministry now because all people in ministry are wonderful. People in ministry are oftentimes just have just the exact same problems as people that are not in ministry. So we're all called to be in those situations where we need to be affecting the other person more than that person needs to affect us, but we still need relational work. Now, this idea of men dominating women is, in fact, a result of the fall. Let me be clear about that. Dominating, men dominating women is a function of the fall. Genesis 3.16, and part of the curse, he says, to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. And all the women said, 
and in pain you will bring forth children. It is challenging to bring forth children. It's just very challenging, and there's pain in raising kids. It's a glorious task, and it's also a painful task. And in pain, he says, and yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. See, that was not part of the precursor picture. It was part of the curse, and we've seen that historically. This is not an admonition to rule over your wives. It's part of the curse. Under the new covenant, we're released from the curse. you got to get this picture. See, that's why some people just read their Bible. See all that stuff I read in Genesis 3.16? It says right there, women, your desire is going to be for your husband, and he will rule over you. I'm not reading this Bible. Well, see, I don't understand the, the, the largeness of the meta narrative, which is redemption and new covenant. We're not under that anymore, men. That's old covenant. It was a function of the curse, and Jesus came that we might be released from the curse. So we no longer dominate women. In fact, as we'll get to a little later in Ephesians, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did, he love his, how did Jesus love the church? He died for us. He served us in ways that we will still never fully comprehend. Dominating? That's... The world. So if you go out in the world, you're going to find culture after culture still. I don't care, Western culture or otherwise, where men tend to dominate women. That's a function of the curse. We're released from that now. Delegation's a part of relational work. I, look, at some point, delegation happens in relationships. You've got to say, okay, you do this and you do this and you do this. So you are now dependent upon someone else to walk in the fullness of what they've been delegated to do. And if they do that inappropriately, or there's still a representation of you. Now, sometimes that's wonderful because you're the weak link and you look better because somebody else looks great. And sometimes that's not so good when somebody else you delegate, but that's still part of the way God set it up. We don't have all the all gifts. We are reliant upon one another to become a working church and community. We are desperately reliant. And that's why I think, and that's the heart of what Paul's getting at here. So don't all this, look, you need each other. Quit stealing. Quit robbing. Robbing. Labor together so that you'll have something to provide. Not just don't, 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 but everybody brings something to the table, and especially in the context of a community like Church of the Red Door community. I hope that makes sense. And there's just no way we can be fruitful and multiply if we are not relational in our work, as I alluded to earlier. Just no way. And when we do become a weak link, this was, see, this was a problem already in the early church. Paul wrote a letter to the Thessalonians, actually wrote two to the church at Thessalonica. Listen to what he says, 2 Thessalonians 3, 10. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. Oh, that's pretty strong. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Such persons we command and exhort in the Lord to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. He's already this, this thing of, hey, now i got part of a church community. I can just kind of squeeze in there and they, they're generous and they give and, they, and there's no reciprocity of work allotted here. And they would, they would provide. Look, there's still much true need. And when there's true need, as Paul was alluding to earlier, if you can't drive to the, we want to help you. If, there, if you need food at a season in your life, we want to help you. If you need clothing, we as a community want to help you. But when you're able then to work or get back on your feet, or maybe it's always that condition, and we will help you till the last day. That's what we want to do as a community. But if somebody has the capacity to do something, do something. Don't just be a busybody. 
that crept into the church, early church, it's going to creep in here as well. So next, fruitfulness and growth. Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish, etc. And you can imagine a world where everyone was working for the singular purpose of glorifying God. Can you imagine that? Helping others, protecting God's earth, bringing the fullness and beauty and creativity he's instilled in his creation through imaginative work. And I want to talk about that now. What kind of work are we taught, called to do? What kind of work are we called to do? Well, there's kind of two things here. He called us to cultivate and to keep. Now think about the garden. The garden, that was actually physical labor. Sometimes there's just physical work that has to be done. You know, you just do it physically. But there was also to name the animals, and which gives us a picture of kind of a cultural or scientific or maybe even intellectual work. You know, using our minds to work is not all, work is not just going out there and doing backbreaking things. It can be imaginative, it can be physical, but it can also be intellectual. It can be creative and productive. And I think you were created to do that. Each one of you, even if you're in a mundane job right now, let me tell you something. God has given you a creative mind and you can reflect Him. And with the power of the Holy Spirit, you have something to offer. You really do. And that's not just some raw, raw kind of speech. I think it's thoroughly biblical. We have to, and sometimes I think just this regimented kind of assembly line, not using any creativity, that's harmful for human beings. And to me, that is a function of the fall. Some people say have to do that. I think we're getting more and more to a place, especially with robotics and things, that people can be released from kind of the mundane assembly line types of jobs anymore and be released into more creative kinds of imaginative work. Now, I'm not saying it's going to always be alleviated. There's always going to be service industry and things. There's dignity in service and there's dignity in everything. But you can be creative even, as a, even if you're just cleaning house. You can be creative. I've seen some incredibly creative, incredibly creative people that come in and they maybe they don't have, didn't have an opportunity to be educated or whatever. Maybe they're just, they just see themselves. Some people just go in and clean the house. Some people come and they do flowers and they orchestrate. And, and maybe some, if some of you have seen that and you say, boy, there's real beauty there and it changes your whole day. Well, let me tell you something. That's, that's imaging God. That's imaging God. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Next is provision. Uh, Genesis one twenty nine. Now, catch the language here. God said, behold, I have given you every plant. Yielding seed, surface of the earth, and every tree that has fruit yielding seed, to every beast of the earth, and every bird and sky and moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. In the end, as I said earlier, we can create nothing, we create nothing from nothing. It starts with the provider, and the provider is God. And let me tell you something. It is a beautiful thing if you can see God as the provider because in the end, you will know that your work will bear fruit because he is able to multiply it and bring it back to you. I think nobody sees me, nobody knows, nobody. See, I'm overlooked all the time. If you do your work as unto God, he will multiply the effort. He is the provider, not you. That takes the pressure off puts it on him. And let me tell you something, it's not pressure for him. That is not pressure for him. And then lastly, and in closing, is limits, that God puts limits on work necessarily. And we know this from Genesis 2-3, and God blessed the seventh day, he sanctified it, because he rested from all of his work which God had created and made. So we choose to recognize our limits when we actually admit that we are not autonomous beings, important to say we need God and his power we're not infinite we're finite 
And because we are finite, we do recognize there are limits. And when you don't, you will blow out at some point, physically, emotionally, spiritually, at some point. And I hear this all the time from pastors. Pastors, they just burned out. They just burned out. Even pastors need to recognize there are limits to your work. You have to create margin in your life. But everybody does. And if we don't admit our limits to work, then we will ultimately not be able to work anymore. Now, notice Exodus 20, and many of you will know this, obviously, again, part of the Decalogue. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your what? Work. So God's already setting it up. But on the seventh day, it's a Sabbath. And in it you shall do no work. You and your son or daughter, your male and your female servant, your cattle, your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So God already is setting up limits. Think about it. God's setting up limits. Are you created in his image? If, if you're creating his image and God set up self-imposed limits, did God really need to rest? Was God like, <gasps> after six days? No, but he's setting up a pattern for us that we work and then we rest and then we work hard and then we rest again. And it creates vitality, it, creates, it sustains our soul, it does all these kinds of things. And it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful picture. And again, if you think about it, uh, being created in God's image, it, it's a powerful, again, a very powerful thought. When God said, do not, you know, part of the Decalogue too was don't, no idols before you. There should be, don't, don't make any idols and put them before me. Why did he do that? Because in some ways he had already imaged us we were the ones that were to reflect his glory, not a piece of wood or a piece of stone. I've already set up something that's going to give you an image of me, and it's man. Amen. Hoytma talks a lot about this, and, he's, and again, I defer because some of you may say, oh, this sounds like he's talking about that we're gods. I am not saying that we're gods in any way. But we are his image bearers. Don't do it out of wood and stone and say, that's an image of God. I've already created an image of me, and it's man. Let us create man in our own image. Hence, don't be it's constructing these idols. You're it. Now put on the clothes and look like me. That's Ephesians. That's where we're going with this. And a very interesting, again, quoting uh, this theology of work, it says, in today's places of work, some limits continue to bless us when we observe them. Now catch this. Human creativity, for example, arises as much from limits as from opportunities. Architects find inspiration from the limits of time and money and space and materials and the purpose imposed by the client. Now think about that. I, maybe you've never thought of that. If I had unlimited resources. Now let me tell you something. It's hard to be creative with unlimited resources. Unlimited space. You know, uh, Tessa's here, my youngest daughter, and she, she's an artist and she loves to paint. But what if we gave her uh, just, okay, here's, here's, your, here's your easel and here's your, here, here's your canvas. And it's so big, it's like from here to Phoenix. And goes, you know, I, I mean, where would you even start with that? But with limits, all of a sudden, she can become very creative. You're not very creative without self-imposed limits. I find that fascinating. Painters find creative expression by accepting the limits of the media from which they choose to work, beginning with the limitations of representing three-dimensional space and two-dimensional canvas. Writers find brilliance when they face word and page limits. It's true. 
when you're forced to consolidate and be concise, like this sermon needs to end very quickly, then you are forced, <laughs> you are forced into a place of actual creativity. It's, it's brilliant. Finally, Mark 2, 27, listen to the language. Jesus said, look, in the context of him healing on the Sabbath, he said, he said the Sabbath was made actually for man. This limitation of rest on the seventh day was actually made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So in conclusion, let me just say this. And again, I, I thought this was a brilliant kind of sum, summation quote here that I think is fair to help us understand. From the beginning, God intended human beings to be his junior partners in the work of bringing his creation to fulfillment. Junior partners, I like that. To bring his creation to fulfillment. Remember, he planted the garden, but a planted garden still doesn't look like anything unless you're watering and cultivating and then keeping it and keeping the weeds out, etc. That's our task, cultivate and keep. He created out of nothing. And he planted out of nothing. Now I'm going to bring my co-laborer in, created in my image, to come in and co-labor with me to bring about culture, to bring about, I was talking about this last night as I was, somebody asked me what I was going to uh, preach on this morning, and I said, look, imagine this, and I've said this before, but imagine it's the extraordinary nature of our culture. I mean, autonomous cars potentially are down the road here, and now iPhones and all the technology and everything we have, and you say, wow, what a, what a privileged time we live in. Uh, just all the technology and that people have to work less and they have more than ever in all of human history. <clears throat> that with a staggering trillion pound weight called sin that we drag with us. And still we see this kind of culture emerging. Yeah, a lot of it's horrific and sin is marring of all of it. But in the end, when we pull this thing, what will be to happen when we're released from that and there will be no more tears, disease, the lion lays down with the lamb, nobody's stealing from anybody, we don't have to have any lawyers or any more, sorry for you guys lawyers out there, we don't need you anymore because nobody's, you know, and now we're released into full capacity production nobody's dying we have resurrected bodies what kind of culture is going to be created people don't they don't think deeply enough about heaven clouds and this and so they don't live for it here people don't live for heaven here because they can't think about it what's that going to look like i think it's going to be the same mandate but now with no sin marring it cultivate and keep jesus said it he said some one day they'll be in charge of 10 cities some in charge of five cities We'll be at new heavens and a new earth without all the blight of sin. Imagine the culture that can, we, I think it'll be staggering when we, we are eternally co-laborers with God. We can get to, we've, we put a thing on Mars. What'll happen without this trillion weight of sin, this trillion pound weight of sin? What's going to happen then? Maybe we'll just be jettisoning around to different galaxies and someday we'll understand what a wormhole is and we'll go through a wormhole and be in a different galaxy and there'll be other planets and life. I don't know. I mean, it's all speculation on my part. I'm just telling you, it's going to be incredible. And don't think of it so nebulously like, oh, heaven, you know, just kind of clouds and clothes I don't want to wear, you know, long robes and things and <laughs> a few angels. Think about it. Think about it. It is not in our nature to be satisfied with things as they are. God didn't create you to say, ah, que sera, sera. He created you to make something happen. 
whether that be in the kingdom is one of the most glorious things you can do is make something happen. Let's build a church. You know, this is not a big plug for this, but let, let's buy some land and build a church and, and have something here for the next, you know, 50 years where Church in the Red Door can impact generations to come. Let's do that. We can do that. We can do that right here. We can do that. I mean, or maybe it's something you're already doing. Going to Cuba, going to Africa, building orphanages, do something, make something happen. It's in, the, it's in your DNA. It's how God created you. And when you're restored, be restored and go full tilt until you run through the tape and then you stand before the Lord and then you hear, well done, good and faithful servant. He said, to receive provision of our needs without working, to endure idleness for long, to toil in a system of uncreated regimentation or to work in social isolation, that's, a, that's not what God created us for. To recap, we're created, catch it, to work as sub-creators in relationship with other people and with God, depending on God's provision always to make our work fruitful and respecting the limits given in his word and evident in his creation. Are you with me? That's work, but it's beautiful and glorious. And don't, just because you may be retired out there, don't say, I'm done with work say I'm able to work into, walk into a new and creative, more imaginative place of work where I can glorify God and hopefully advance his kingdom as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the privilege of being able to co-labor with you, the creator, the one who does it out of nothing. Lord, we're called to reflect and mirror your image, to be your ambassadors, to be your representatives here on earth. Those things sound glorious, too far above us. But it all starts with a relationship with Jesus. How do you have that? Some of you may be asking, whether you're watching online or elsewhere, how do you have that? You simply say, Father, forgive me. I was wrong about you. This, this, this following Jesus is much more exciting than I ever thought it would be, and I choose to want to follow you, and I, will you forgive me of my sins? I choose to follow you for the rest of my life. And I would say just be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, and you'll receive the Holy Spirit, and all this will continue to make more and more sense to you. It's as simple as that. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for creating us. We thank you the fact that you give us life and breath. And we will worship you not only here on this earth, but for all of eternity. As Paul read this morning, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Have a great time. Spend time loving on one another, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>